Hey there, it's me, Jesse Tyler Ferguson, that redheaded actor from Modern Family. I have a podcast. It's combining a couple of my favorite things, talking and food. Please join me as I dine with the biggest names in entertainment, people like Julie Bowen, Kristen Bell, Fred Armisen, and so many more. It's called Dinners on Me, and you're invited. Am I saying a chocolate souffle is going to get me to reveal all of my secrets? Yeah, I am. Listen now, wherever you get your podcasts. Democrats have had a politically rough winter, one that's ended with President Biden's approval rating plunging to new lows. Now, though, Democrats are hoping to turn things around with only eight months left before the midterm elections. And Biden used his State of the Union address earlier this week to try to chart a new path for his party and his agenda. And my report is this. The State of the Union is strong because you, the American people, are strong. We are stronger today. We are stronger today than we were a year ago. And we'll be stronger a year from now than we are today. Biden seems to be using this moment to pivot. He's emphasized his administration's centrist agenda items, and he's released new policies in response to the pandemic, calling for an end to shutdowns and school closures. But some in his party have said it may be too late. Are his critics right? Is it too late for a political course correction with such little time left before the midterms? Biden's made his priorities clear, but will the Democratic Party follow suit? And how will voters' priorities be reflected in the elections to come across the country? This is Can He Do That, a podcast about the powers and limitations of American government in a time of deep division. I'm Allison Michaels. Democrats are very, very nervous right now for a number of reasons. One is just history. When you look at a president's first midterm, it is usually not a very pleasant experience for that president or that president's party. You tend to see a voter backlash to the party that's in power. Sean Sullivan is a White House reporter for The Washington Post. And so going into this, I think a lot of Democrats knew that Look, they control the White House, they control the House and the Senate, albeit narrowly, and that they could be subject to the same headwinds. The second thing that gives a lot of people worry is if you look at public polling, President Biden's approval rating has really been in free fall for about the last six or seven months. There was a poll over the weekend that the Washington Post and ABC News had, had President Biden's approval rating at 37%. That is very, very alarming for Democrats. And then the third and final reason that gives them a lot of concern is that they really do have almost no margin for error. The Senate is a 50-50 Senate right now. Democrats have the majority because Vice President Harris can break ties under the Constitution. They have a narrow advantage in the House as well. So they don't have a buffer here where they can lose 10 seats, 15 seats, and still be okay. They've got to perform really, really well. And when you look at all of the indicators across the board right now. There is not a lot for Democrats to be happy about. Is there a predominant feeling among Democrats about whether Biden himself is an asset or liability, let's say, on the trail, or should they be nodding to some of the things he's done? What's the perception there? You know, that's a really interesting question. And my colleague, Mariana, and I did a recent story on this. And we went to several Democrats, both in the Senate and the House, who are in battleground races. And we asked them how they would answer that question. And we got a range of answers and a mix. 
a couple of incumbent senators wouldn't even acknowledge the question. They immediately pivoted to something else. But then you had other Democrats who said, look, I would happily welcome President Biden to my district. So there was no real one predominant answer. We haven't seen Democrats totally run away from President Biden. But at the same time, there really isn't a huge warm welcome that we're seeing from a lot of Democrats. And so that is one barometer to watch, I think, as we move toward November. How do Democrats talk about the president? Do they welcome him? Do they skip events that he's at when he goes to their state or their district? You know, some Democrats we talk to worry that this can kind of become a self-fulfilling prophecy, that these Democrats need President Biden to be popular in order for them to be competitive and to have a chance of winning. And if they reject him and their voters read about that, that could make him more unpopular and therefore make themselves more unpopular. So it's frustrating, actually, to some Democrats who say, look, I don't see why you would you know, reject the president. You need him in your district to be popular if you want to win. And so why not try to make him as popular as possible? So it's a question, I would say, without a clear answer at this point. But if we do start to see patterns one way or the other as we get closer to the elections, I think that will give us some clues about what Democrats are seeing in their private polling, what their strategists are telling them the right move is here. How much of this is even a top-down strategy? Like, how much about the way that midterm strategy is coordinated among a party comes from the White House? Well, it depends from cycle to cycle. And what we've seen in our reporting this time around is that there are sometimes question marks in the Democratic Party about who's in charge or where the decisions are coming from. Are House leaders and Senate leaders and people at the White House and people at the DNC often on the same page even when it comes to messaging? I think sometimes there are questions about that. I mean, there are decisions that get made about fundraising that tend to be top down. But, you know, when it comes to messaging, I think the thing that down-ballot candidates, in this case, I mean House and Senate candidates, realize is that so much of their fortunes are tied to how people feel about the president. And so they're invested in, you know, making sure that the agenda is something that they can go home and defend. They make sure that the legislation is something that would be positive to them. And you tend to see, you know, presidents and White Houses be sort of sympathetic to that because it's in their interest too, right, to have people in power in their party What we're seeing right now, I think, is a pretty swift backlash, at least for the moment, against President Biden, against his agenda, against his White House for various reasons. And I think that's really concerning to a lot of Democrats. Yeah. Biden tried to make the case for himself for his administration for Democrats this week in the State of the Union. He touted specifically the American Rescue Plan, the bipartisan infrastructure bill as these major achievements on the part of the administration. Do Democrats think that those items are winning messages in November? I think a lot of them do. And one of the complaints I actually hear from Democrats often is, hey, look, we've got a really compelling story to tell. We've done some good things, but we haven't done a really good job of telling people about those good things. So you take the American Rescue Plan, for example. This is one of the first really big sweeping piece of legislation that President Biden was able to move through the Congress on a fairly short timetable and then sign into law. This was $1.9 trillion for COVID-19 relief. And that's a lot of money. I think there's a feeling in the Democratic Party that after Democrats passed that, they moved on to trying to pass other pieces of legislation, the infrastructure bill, a social spending and climate bill that to this day 
remains unpassed out of Congress. And that if they could do it over, I think a lot of Democrats would say we should have done a better job going to the American people and saying, look at what this COVID relief bill did. Look at what you got out of this. Look at how your life was changed as a result of this. Because a year removed from that, what I hear from strategists, pollsters, people who track this in focus groups is that there's not a lot of familiarity with that. And it's doubly frustrating to Democrats because not a single Republican supported this. So they feel like, hey, this is something on the campaign that we should own, that we should say, look, we passed this. Not a single Republican supported that. But I think the problem in the eyes of a lot of Democrats is how they talk about what they've done. And I think a lot of them feel like they've just fallen short when it comes to that sales job. It's so interesting to me because when we started talking about the passage of that bill, one thing that kept coming up was how President Biden knew that President Obama back in 2008 did not sell the rescue package then, did not sell the financial bailout package the way that he should have. And it resulted in people not giving him proper credit as perceived by the Biden administration for and the Obama administration at the time for having saved the economy. And the Biden administration talked about that so much. We're not going to make these same mistakes. And now we're having this conversation a year later, and it sounds like perhaps they did make those mistakes, or maybe it's just nearly impossible to communicate to our huge country about what these policies do and who's responsible for them. Yeah. And you know, on top of that, you have a lot of people at the top levels of the Biden administration who worked for President Obama, who experienced this firsthand. And as you say, we're determined not to let this happen. You know, I think if you go to Democrats, they'll give you a range of reasons for why this happened from, look, we moved on to these other very, very challenging legislative pushes on Capitol Hill. We were also dealing with the pandemic itself. But, you know, I think that there is a broad recognition in the party that they didn't do a good enough job selling that. You can see now that with the infrastructure bill, President Biden does appear to be doing some salesmanship, but we still don't know how this is actually resonating. You know, he's taking one trip a week, sometimes a little bit more, but it's not like he's out there, at least at this point, you know, three or four times a week talking about the stuff in local communities. And that's one of the suggestions, frankly, that I hear from a lot of Democrats is, look, he's the president. He can move around. He can do multiple events. When he goes to these local areas, it gets attention. He ends up on the local news. He ends up in the local newspaper. People follow it on social media that the White House should try to do more of that. We're seeing them do some of that. And I think it remains to be seen how much this is actually resonating with voters when it comes to this infrastructure bill that they're trying to sell now. More on where Democrats stand as Biden tries to shift the narrative after the break. If you're looking for a smoking gun, I can absolutely guarantee you, you will not find it. In October 2001, a series of letters filled with a deadly powder called anthrax were dropped into the U.S. mail system. What started as an unprecedented case turned into an unsettling mystery. Who sent these deadly letters and why? From Campside Media and Sony Music Entertainment, I'm Josh Dean, and this is Cover Up Season 4, The Anthrax Threat, available now. Another thing that Biden tried to tout in his speech on Tuesday was that it was time for the country to move on from COVID and that the administration had gotten us there. He released plans on Wednesday for how we're going to move forward that include no more school closures, no more shutdowns. We have the tools we need. It's time for America to get back to work and fill our great downtowns again with people. People working from home can feel safe and begin to return to their offices. 
We're doing that here in the federal government. Are these messages likely to be effective with midterm voters who at this point have, you know, lived through two years of this pandemic? Is this likely to turn things around for them? Well, I think it all depends on where we are in the pandemic when voters are going to the polls. I think where people are at that moment in time is really going to say a lot, because I think back to last year when we were in the summer of 2021, when we saw cases reach a really, really low level. I remember being at a 4th of July event with President Biden at the White House, where he said, we're close to declaring our independence from COVID. All across this nation, we can say with confidence, America is coming back together. 245 years ago, we declared our independence from a distant king. Today, we are closer than ever to declaring our independence from a deadly virus. But what did we see right after that? We saw the rise of the Delta variant, and then we saw Omicron after that. And so I think there's a recognition now from the White House that there's only so much that they can control, and they need to be mindful of what they say, because last summer they set expectations at a level that they couldn't ultimately meet. President Biden, when he walked in to the State of the Union, he was not wearing a face mask. He came in, he shook hands as he walked into the House chamber. But the question is, where are we going to be two, three, four, five months down the road? I think there's a growing sense at the White House that they just can't answer that question. So they need to strike a balance between saying, hey, here's what's okay to do now with the caveat that it might not be okay to do that if something more serious comes along. And thanks to the progress we've made in the past year, COVID-19 no longer need control our lives. I know some are talking about living with COVID-19, but tonight I say that we never will just accept living with COVID-19. We'll continue to combat the virus as we do other diseases. And because this virus mutates and spreads, we have to stay on guard. So COVID will be in some way a part of their message in the fall, as will some elements of the infrastructure bill and the American Rescue Plan. One thing that's particularly contentious among Democrats, or so it seems, Biden alluded to Tuesday night in his speech, where he explicitly called out the defund the police slogan, and he said the answer to police reform was actually more funding for police. We should all agree the answer is not to defund the police. It's to fund the police. So is defund the police and support for it going to be an issue amongst Democrats themselves? How is it working with voters? Sort of what's the plan here, given the sort of discord within the party? Yeah, there really is some discord in the party. And there is concern among a lot of Democrats that this could be something that is politically damaging. You know, defund the police is not something that if you went and canvassed every Democratic member of Congress, you would not find a lot of Democrats who openly say that. You would probably find a very small amount who say, yes, I I support the defund the police movement. But it's the slogan that a lot of voters are familiar with, that they remember. And it's one that Republicans have been effective at tethering to the rest of the party and trying to advance this broader argument that Democrats are soft on crime. And what worries Democrats right now is the combination of that with the fact that we are seeing a rise in violent crime all across the nation and the potential that this could really be a big issue that voters vote on in the midterms. And so I think what we heard from President Biden's speech, what we've seen from a lot of Democratic candidates is an effort to tell voters, look, there may be people in our party 
that support defund the police, but that is not a majority view. That's the message that they're trying to send. The complicated thing for them is, is that message going to be received or are voters who are casual observers of news or who tune in every now and again going to associate the Democratic Party with the party that wants to defund the police? That's something that I think worries strategists. And I think that's part of why you saw President Biden try to clarify that. Because I think there was a feeling that in the last election, a lot of Democrats who were not supporters of defund the police or other controversial slogans like abolish ICE, for example, that, that even they were hurt, politically speaking, by some of these attacks. And when you're President Biden and you're really well known and you have a really defined kind of persona in the public and people know your record, it's easier to rebut that. But if you are a lesser known candidate for the House or the Senate, I think you're going to see a lot of Republicans try to tag their Democratic opponents with that label. And so it's something that Democrats, I think, are trying to head off right now and something that they sense could be a liability if they leave it unchecked. And I think they've concluded by and large that they don't want to leave it unchecked. And all that said, you know, there are some prominent Democrats who support defunding the police. And so that's also what makes this complicated for Democrats is that when they come out and say what President Biden said, there are going to be members of the party who are going to disagree with that. But what messages are Democrats coalescing around? We've talked a lot about disagreement. What are the areas where they all generally agree? Do they exist? Well, there are some areas. I mean, you see it, you know, in the fact that they were able to pass the American Rescue Plan. There was a belief, and I think there continues to be a belief, in the government being there to provide resources for the pandemic. Now, of course, there are certainly diverging views among Democrats about where we are in the pandemic, what is the right course of action in terms of masking, in terms of restrictions. So you see some disagreements there. You see disagreements around general principles. Take healthcare, for example. If you talk to most Democrats, the vast majority of office holders are going to say, look, we should expand healthcare opportunities for people, particularly people who can't afford it. But then you ask them, well, how are you going to do that? And you're sort of back to some version of the debate that played out in the 2020 primary. And then on climate change, that's another complicated issue. Again, if you went to every Democrat on Capitol Hill and said, look, should we do something about climate change? This is a real threat. I think most, if not all of them, would say absolutely. But then you ask them, what should be done? What does that mean for fracking? What does that mean for the fossil fuel industry? And that's when you start to get into the differences between Democrats. So the challenge for them is they they agree on a lot of big principles, but then when it comes down to the details and the fine print, that's where they often get tripped up and they're not able to reach agreement and it gets really, really complicated. One thing I didn't hear you mention among areas where they might agree is former President Trump. Do Democrats still think they can win races by talking about the return of Trump? Is that still on their minds? You know, even that has stoked some debate I think that there is a belief in the party that he is somebody who still creates some very, very strong negative feelings among not just Democrats, but among moderate voters, independent voters, the kind of voters that they want to be targeting in the midterms and potentially in, in the next presidential election as well. But even within that, there's a debate about how much of the message should be about Trump, how much of the message should be about what happened on January 6th, how much of the message should be about what happens if Trump were to come back and run for president again? You'll hear disagreements from Democrats, some of whom will say he presents a real and significant threat as ever. 
And we should talk to voters about that. And others say, you know, that it's important to talk about it, but we need to have our own economic message. We need to have our plan. The reality is that historically, voters do tend to choose on, do they think the party in power is doing a good job or do they think the party in power is doing a bad job? And then they cast their votes accordingly. But there's still a strong, strong anti-Trump sentiment all across the Democratic Party. I think the debate comes into play when it comes to how much to talk about and how big a part of the campaign platform to make it. And does the White House have an opinion on that? You know, it's interesting. When you look at the way they've navigated this, they've really picked their chances. We saw, obviously, President Biden give a speech where he was very, very critical of President Trump on January 6th this year. But outside of that, when you ask White House officials, when the president himself gets questions, they tend to not want to get in a back and forth with Trump. And so their strategy seems to be, we're going to pick our chances where we feel like it is beneficial to talk about him, to rebut what he's saying, if we feel like there's something we should rebut. And when we feel like we shouldn't do that, we're not going to do that. So it depends on the situation for them, but it's not like they're out there every day trying to stoke a fight with Trump. In many cases, it's the opposite. They're trying not to talk about him or get involved in a back and forth because I think there is a belief among some in the Biden orbit that sometimes if you do engage with him, you can potentially elevate an issue or an argument that you don't want elevated at all. Well, we'll see if any of that changes before the midterms in just a couple months. Sean, thank you as always for your insights. Thanks, Allison. This has been another episode of Can He Do That? Thanks so much for listening. Can He Do That? is a team effort here at The Post. It's produced by Arjun Singh and Sharla Freeland, with logo art by Greg Manifold and theme music by Ted Muldoon. If you're looking for a smoking gun, I can absolutely guarantee you, you will not find it. In October 2001, a series of letters filled with a deadly powder called anthrax were dropped into the U.S. mail system. What started as an unprecedented case turned into an unsettling mystery. Who sent these deadly letters and why? From Campside Media and Sony Music Entertainment, I'm Josh Dean, and this is Cover Up Season 4, The Anthrax Threat, available now. 